Welcome to All Things Eerie. This is Kathy. I'm your host, and this is episode 27. I would just like to say thank you to those who have been downloading the podcast. I hope that you've been enjoying it. I know a lot of us have had some free time on our hands lately and have been able to either catch up on our favorite podcast or start some new ones. I know I've been trying to listen to some of my favorites like Crime Junkies and Murder Myth Mysteries and Lore, just to name a few. Unfortunately, I like I'm sure a lot have been watching a lot of the news and have been just scared the hell out of. Where I live, we've been put on a stay-at-home place and order, and I myself have been quarantined for 14 days uh, because of health issues. Yesterday was the first time I was outside and took a ride around the peninsula here in Erie. Never got out of the car, but it was the first time of being outside. And it felt great. Didn't come in contact with anybody, but just for mental health to be outside. So I get it. It has been nerve-wracking for a lot of us, but we all have a role to play in whatever this is. And let us just hope that we as a human race can come out of this better than what we did going in. As before, if you've enjoyed these podcasts, then please go to an any of these platforms, Facebook, Spotify, iTunes, or podbean.com to download any of the previous episodes. And while you're there, let me know what you think. Or if you have a question, comment, by all means, put one there. I've got time on my hands. Today's episode is a tale as old as time itself. Sex, love, lies, greed, And let's not forget the biggest one, stupidity. This was a textbook case for murder as to who did it and as for why. What it doesn't really show is the absolute craziness as to why people think they can get away with something is beyond me. Now, this took place back in June of 2012, but let me give you some background. Anne-Marie... Vassalotti Fitzpatrick was a 1986 graduate of Fermi High School in Enfield, Pennsylvania. Anne-Marie had grown up in Enfield and went to the University of Connecticut after graduating from Fermi High School. And then she went on to graduate from UConn in 1990. In In June of 2012, and at the time of her death, she had been working for Hunt Valley based collectibles insurance services. She and her family were living in Felton, PA. Sounds like they were living just like you or I, daily lives, job, family. And then it all came crashing down. On June 6th of 2012, emergency personnel were dispatched to Old Forge Road, in Chansford Township, which is located in York County, Pennsylvania. There, the EMTs found Joseph Fitzpatrick, her husband, and his wife, Anne-Marie Fitzpatrick, down near the shoreline of Muddy Creek. Anne-Marie was unresponsive, but the EMTs were eventually able to get a pulse, and she was transported to the hospital. But unfortunately, Anne-Marie was pronounced dead. 
Since foul play was not suspected, the family began making funeral arrangements, and Anne-Marie's body was sent to the mortician for embalming. But however, two days later, on June 8th, the Pennsylvania State Police received a call from one Rebecca Berry, who was also employed by the same company as Anne-Marie and was also a friend. That friend was also employed at the collectibles insurance company. And what had happened was Rebecca found a note in Anne-Marie's day planner that she found a bit suspicious. The note said, if something happens to me, Joe, what it said. So what Rebecca did was she asked for permission to go into Amory's computer, into her email, which was granted, and there, and there Rebecca found an email that Anne-Marie had sent to herself, which we, as people who have email, I email myself all the time with cases and things like that for the podcast, but what Anne-Marie had emailed to herself was, in the subject line, it stated, if something happens to me, and then when Rebecca opened it, this, the body of the email read, Joe and I, and this is word for word, Joe and I are having marital problems. Last night, we almost had an accident where a huge log fell on me. Joe was on the pile with the log and had me untying a tarp directly below. Now, this email was sent June 6, 2012 at 1030 a.m. Rebecca Berry showed police the note and gave them access to Anne-Marie's email account. Now, for those that do listen to this podcast, again, thank you. Y'all will remember, this is something that we spoke about during the episode about Janine Kirk. And for those that haven't listened to to that particular episode, spoiler alert, Janine was very smart and had a diary where she wrote everything down about the abuse that she had been suffering through with her boyfriend, quote unquote, who later in turn murdered her. But she hid her diary, just like Anne-Marie here did with the notes and her email, but she hid them in plain sight. Two days after this incident, Joseph Fitzpatrick had an interview with the state police and said that he and his wife had gone to the creek on their property, property to belatedly celebrate their wedding anniversary. He then described them as having a great dinner and talking, followed by him driving the ATV to the creek with her on the back. But later, Fitzpatrick said that his wife wanted to drive the ATV herself. Since she was inexperienced on the ATV, he said he demonstrated the controls to her and she drove around a bit while he sat on the back which anybody who's ever had ATVs and stuff like that, and I only rode them a little bit because my mom was adamant about not being on the back of A, a motorcycle, or B, an ATV. So, of course, as kids, we did it behind her back. 
because she, as a kid, a teenager, got onto a motorcycle without a helmet and the person did a wheelie and she fell off and hit her head. So we had to suffer as kids and not be able to ride any. So what we did is all kids do, we did it behind her back. But we never really learned to drive them. So I, as a girl, always was on the back. So I never really learned to drive one. But I digress. Now, during this interview with him and police, of course he had a great dinner, quote unquote. What other kind of dinner would it have been? I mean, they were celebrating their anniversary. I mean, again, how many people that are being interviewed, you know, in a police investigation sit there and say, you know what? Yeah, we were fighting. And again, spoiler alert, you know, I got a girlfriend that my wife didn't know about. And oh, by the way, my girlfriend wanted me to leave my wife for, but I didn't want to risk losing all my money in a divorce. So, you know, I, it's, it's just one of those things of people aren't going to sit there and do that because that just puts a freaking bullseye on their back. And cops will look at you like, what are you doing? As it was approaching sunset, Anne-Marie had wanted to start a fire, but their propane torch they needed was back at the house several hundred yards away and up a steep hill, which is what Fitzpatrick was telling the police. And Anne-Marie got on the driver's seat while he sat behind her giving her instructions. And this is, again, this is what he's telling police. He also had said that he had assisted with driving or shifting the ATV into gear from the left and giving it gas on the right. And he had also said that the next thing he remembered was the ATV flipping backwards. And like I said, I've only ridden on ATVs a few times and the person who was driving was always in the front. And even if they were trying to control from the back, that person was not able to control it very well. I mean, they would have had to have been huge. And that person in the front would have been so far forward, it would have been absolutely impossible. But that's just my experience. Again, I never owned one, but those were my experiences on ATVs. That's just me. In an article I read, Fitzpatrick said that there was a story about the accident that appeared the day after on a local television station that said that Anne-Marie had accidentally backed the ATV down an embankment, which, okay, depending on how big this embankment was, if it was a short one, I can see, because especially if you're not used to driving what I consider a stick drive, you know, because you have to use your, your two, your, your feet, and, and your hand in balance because you're not used to it. When I first learned to drive a stick car or my ex-husband's car, I, I had to do it on flat surface because where we grew up and where we first lived, there were a lot of hills. And if you were not very good at it and there was someone behind you, you ended up hitting into that person trying to get into gear, especially if you weren't good at driving a stick. It just happens. But again, the TV station said she accidentally backed the ATV down the embankment and into the creek and that her husband found her in the water and started CPR until paramedics arrived. 
which it also stated that she was resuscitated but died at the hospital. And when asked later if his wife had put the ATV into gear, he said, I believe so. I don't recall reaching up and shifting. I really didn't. And that's when we went back in the, the water. So Fitzpatrick also said that he did not remember real specifics about going into the water and that the next thing he remembered was coming out of the water and not immediately seeing his wife. He noted that the ATV was submerged, but the rack on the rear was above water level. But Anne-Marie was found in the creek. Okay, so if I've said it once, I'll say it again. If you're gonna lie, remember what you said so it doesn't come back and bite you in the ass. This guy couldn't even come up with a good lie to cover, what up, to cover up what he did. And I'm not condoning his behavior by any means, but he's not even able to lie. Fitzpatrick also said several minutes had passed after searching for his wife and that he left his cell phone that he had brought with him on a table nearby and he went and he called 911. Now stop and think for a minute. He left his cell phone on a nearby table. How does that not send up a red flag? Who doesn't take their cell phone with them everywhere? Even back in 2012, unless they knew that they were going to be doing something that could break the phone, like submerging it in water. People take their phones with them when they go on an ATV. I have friends that we go to their 4th of July picnic every year, and they take their phones with them all the time when they go out on the ATV. All the time. He explained that while on the phone, he had observed Anne-Marie float, Anne-Marie's body floating in the creek, close to the opposite side of uh, the opposite shore of the creek. He then went into the creek and retrieved her. He then this is what he told the state police. She was taken to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. He then told the state police that the water in the creek was about eight feet deep where the ATV went in. He reported no condition, no conditions that would have impaired his wife that night. Um, and, and in fact, they got tox toxicology reports back. She had no traces of alcohol or intox intoxicants in her blood. You know, so no drugs, no uh, alcohol, nothing in her blood. So there, there would have been nothing in her system that would have impaired her enough that she would have wrecked this, this ATV. So what we have so far looks to be like a tragic accident. Anne-Marie's unresponsive, but they, they were able to get her back enough to get a pulse. She's transported to the hospital. Unfortunately, a short time later, she's pronounced dead. And again, no, since no foul play, they, they make the funeral arrangements. She's sent to the, the mortician to start embalming process. Seems to be pretty much on the up and up, like I said, Tragic death of a wife, mother, sister, everyone is grieving her loss. Even her obituary is lovely. And this is just part of it. On June 6, 2012, Anne-Marie Ney Vassilotti Fitzpatrick suddenly passed away. 
She was the beloved wife of Joseph Bernard Fitzpatrick III, devoted mother of Emily and Rachel, loving daughter of Patrick N. and Bonnie Vassalotti. And it goes on to list others who had passed before her and those who were still there to mourn her loss. Like I said, very lovely. And then two days later, everything gets turned up on its head because of her co-worker. So once this is all given to the state police about the email and about the day planner, the police realize, hey, one, this guy can't keep his story straight. Two, his story isn't lining up with the way it happened. Three, now we have something from the victim herself saying, if something happened to me, look at him. And this launches a 21-month investigation to find out what Mr. Fitzpatrick was really up to and if he indeed, indeed kill his wife, like Anne-Marie is claiming he would have done. And this is what the investigation finds out. One, like he had a girlfriend. Like we didn't see that one coming. The state police later contacts Fitzpatrick's quote-unquote love interest, whose name is Ms. George, who says... Fitzpatrick told her he was in an unhappy ma marriage. And quite frankly, this is what they all say. She also goes on to say that on or around May 30th, 2012, which was the Fitzpatrick's wedding anniversary. Nice. Anne-Marie found out about the affair. Wow. Wonderful. She goes on to state that Fitzpatrick indicated he was going to talk to his wife about leaving the marriage sometime during around June 4th through the 8th. The woman, Ms. George, also states that Fitzpatrick told her his wife was very upset about the affair and that on June 1st, during a dinner out, Anne-Marie became upset and went to bed crying about the situation. Now, I'm not sure how... She he or she expected Anne-Marie to react. I mean, this could have easily gone the other way. I mean, there's a show called Snap for a reason. I mean, it could have been Anne-Marie that's been in jail and not him. And it could be both of them dead and not Anne-Marie. Ms. George also says that Fitzpatrick told her his wife threatened him by saying she would probably remarry and that another man would be raising their two daughters. Now, again, this isn't uncommon, but when most men hear this, they don't like it. It's kind of like, if I don't, if I can't have you, no one else can, even if I don't want you. She goes on further to say that she told Fitzpatrick that if he wanted to be with her, he would have to leave his wife. It's always the ultimatum for the girlfriend. But remember, if he cheated on his wife with you, who's to say he won't cheat again? Like they say, once a cheater, always a cheater. Hell, they make a show about it. It's called Cheaters. And that's a train wreck you cannot stop watching. Trust me. My partner watches it, and I just sit there with my mouth hanging open going, oh my god, what the fuck is this shit? Fitzpatrick was also in contact with Miss George on the day of his wife's death. Nice. Before and after the ATV, quote-unquote, accident, he indicates to her earlier that day that he would talk to his wife about separating and divorcing her. 
He later called her just prior to the state police arriving to the scene at the, at the creek to investigate what happened. Then they go on to speak two more times. I'm not sure if he just needed validation for what happened or what. Ms. George goes on to say that the next day on June 7th, Fitzpatrick told her to delete messages between them from her Facebook account and warned her that the state police would be coming to speak with her. She also proceeded to receive, she also received calls from Fitzpatrick from various telephone numbers she did not recognize, believing this was to avoid police detection. So he got burner phones or he used other people's telephones. I'm not sure if that should have been the red flag or the fact that she heard it on the news that his wife is dead. Hello, delete your messages. Hey, the cops are coming to talk to you. That should have been clue one should have been, hey, his wife is dead. Clue two, delete your messages. Clue three, hey, the cops are coming to talk to you. I mean, red flags all over the fucking place. Also, Fitzpatrick told her that the police think he, he killed his wife. He also said that his wife drowned because that's what the coroner was listing as her cause of death. Again, uh, making a validation for what he did. Also, he had a $1.7 million life insurance policy on his wife. Now we're getting down to the nitty gritty. Greed. Was he in debt or did he just want the money to start over? Now, in the research that I had, in, and there was quite a bit of um, articles on him, even stating in the uh, Commonwealth versus Fit Fitzpatrick and things like that, I did not see that he was in debt. It just stated that he had the million-dollar life insurance policy on, on her. The police also discovered that he had conducted computer searches on Google for phrases like life insurance review during contestability period and polygraph legal in which states. Look, dumbest thing you can ever do unless you know how to completely erase your computer history without doing a factory reset, don't look shit up that's going to make you look guilty. I mean, unless you do podcasts about murder, then you might stand a chance. But even then, you really have to be careful. I, I mean, my, my computer history, I am so guilty on so many things, it's not even funny. Even on both of my laptops, not even so not cool. I am in so much trouble. It's not even funny. <laughs> so, but I, it's on here that I have podcasts. All my podcasts are sa saved on here, even on my phone. It, it is, I have all kinds of murder podcasts that I listen to, even haunted podcasts. I mean, it's just who I am. I'm just very morbid, but it just, it would explain who I am. But if somebody in my life would die, I would have a hard time explaining how I could not get away with murder. It's just, it would just depend on who it was and how they died. So that's just me. This guy, I mean, he was dumb from the beginning. Fitzpatrick also was very firm to the state police that he had no marital problems and that there were no problems between them on June 6th when that occurred. So again, no, we have no problems, even though I am schlepping some other woman and 
yes, I have a million dollar policy out on my wife and I'm too fucking cheap to get a divorce. But during his affair, this is what came out during the trial. Ms. George read this during the court hearing. Face, this is a Facebook post authored by Fitzpatrick two weeks prior to the murder. And this, and this is what follows. And I'm reading it word for word. My children love their home and I would not want to take that from them. I know you're a package deal and have frankly thought about how I could change the girls' room to accommodate your girls. But they are the easy things to get past. The hardest will be my separation. Also, on June 1st, 2012, Fitzpatrick sent Miss George an email which Miss George described. Fitzpatrick wrote, I love you, in all caps with more exclamation points than I could count. Then on the evening of June 2nd, Fitzpatrick sent the following Facebook message to Ms. George. I can't believe how I've fallen in love with you in such a short period of time. It's crazy when you step back and think about it. I feel like I'm in jail in a jail cell, wanting something I can't have. So it hurts real bad. I believe you feel the same. I understand your position, single, want to be with someone, have a man pursuing you that you have been intimate with. So you are torn and want satisfaction. Understanding this, I tried to push the limits, taking risks at getting caught prematurely to develop what I truly believe will be something that few people on this earth get to experience. My life is riddled with so many emotions. It's hard to comprehend. I want to be yours. I want to help you pack, move, do whatever I can to help, but I can't. It feels like something is sticking in my chest with a knife. I hate feeling this way. So tears are filling my eyes because I guess I have to say goodbye until things are appropriate. I have no words for this dribble. Sorry. Yeah, I do. Horseshit. He knew he was going to do this prior to sending this out. And this is right around the same time of the log incident. Mmm. Yes. Miss George also testified that on the afternoon of the murder, Fitzpatrick sent Miss George multiple text messages. One of the texts and one of the text messages from Fitzpatrick stated, really miss you. The next test text message from Fitzpatrick to Miss George exclaimed, and really, really, really feel I was made for you. Another text message from Fitzpatrick stated, yes, but it is true. I love you. Yeah, I'm being exaggerating on these because this guy, he, mm. in addition, on that same afternoon, Fitzpatrick sent Ms. George a text message with the lyrics of the song, You Are My Sunshine. I sing that song to my granddaughter. I have sang that song from her birth. I can't even go there with that. And the comment, well, maybe one day you won't need to buy another place. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm literally gagging on this shit. Why would she go into the same place, around the same place where he killed his wife? Mm. Also during the trial, a state police expert in accident reconstruction said that since Anne-Marie and Fitzpatrick were sub subjected 
to similar forces related to the ATV accident, they both should have suffered similar injuries, but they didn't. And the expert found that there's no reasonable way to explain how Anne-Marie was injured and Fitzpatrick was not. Sure there was. And it was noted that during the initial questioning at Fitzpatrick's home, immediately after the incident, Fitzpatrick told trooper, the trooper a detailed story of an ATV accident in which Anne-Marie was driving the ATV and how he was seated behind her. Fitzpatrick told the trooper that the ATV accelerated very quickly backwards and went over the embankment that was approximately six feet higher than the creek level. Fitzpatrick stated that the last thing he remembered was Anne-Marie going over the top of Fitzpatrick's head when they hit the water. He also claimed that he searched for Anne-Marie around the ATV but could not find her. He then told the trooper that when he eventually called 911, that's when he saw Anne-Marie across the creek. He further indicated to the trooper that he jumped back into the water to retrieve Anne-Marie, but was not strong enough to carry her up into the embankment. But most importantly, Fitzpatrick told the trooper that he was not hurt. And the trooper testified that he did not, he being the trooper, did not visibly see any injuries on Fitzpatrick. In addition, Corporal, the Corporal, Corporal, we're just going to say trooper, testified that Fitzpatrick's interview, that he was the one that interviewed Fitzpatrick two days after the incident. So if he had any injuries at all, two days later, he definitely would have been bruised. Any bruises would have shown up by then. Also, Fitzpatrick didn't go to the hospital, nor did he go to a doctor. They also observed that Fitzpatrick offered contradictory accounts of the accident. This is what they're testifying to. The EMT on the scene testified that Fitzpatrick told him that when Fitzpatrick did not see Anne-Marie after the accident, he got back in the water and dove down to the ATV. Fitzpatrick stated to that EMT that he found Anne-Marie under the ATV and that it took him several tries to get her loose. So he changed his story again. Fitzpatrick contradicts the version of the incident that he told the trooper, believing that Anne-Marie might be trapped under the ATV and that Fitzpatrick searched for Anne-Marie around the ATV and could not find her, and that it was not until he was later on the phone that Fitzpatrick saw Anne-Marie across the creek, and then that's when he jumped back into the water, brought her back from across the creek. It's these contradictory accounts of the alleged accident given by Fitzpatrick immediately after the incident are indicators of his guilt. Now, I'm going to give you a trigger warning because this is testimony of Dr. Bollinger who looked at Anne-Marie's body. So Dr. Bollinger is the coroner. It's Dr. Bollinger's opinion that Anne-Marie's death was drowning. Dr. Bollinger also testified to the multiple injuries 
that appeared on Anne-Marie's body, which totaled at least 25. Again, this is a trigger warning. She stated that Anne-Marie had 14 or more injuries about her torso, eight injuries to her upper extremities, and at least 12 injuries about her lower extremities. Dr. Bollinger also documented the following injuries to Anne-Marie. Bruises over the upper and lower lip, bruises over the right temporal region of the head, and bruises to the upper right portion of the head. Hemorrhages about the back of the head and about the mid aspects of the head. Hemorrhages on the right side of the neck within the muscles of the neck. Three bruises to the scapular region and a pattern of bruises on the infrascapular region. Several bruises to the right kidney region, abrasions on the left buttock, a bruise on the right buttock, and a bruise between the breasts. A small bruise in the right lower abdominal quadrant, a bruise near the shoulder where Anne-Marie's left arm and shoulder meet, a bruise along the left side of the torso that continued to the back side, bruises above the left hip area, a small scratch of the skin in the groin region, bruises on the back of the left thigh, a bruise on the outer aspect of the foot, the left foot, a bruise on the back of the right leg, scattered abrasions on the right leg, and a severe laceration on the great toe, abrasions and contusions on the upper and lower parts of the both of the arms, scratching and bruising about both of the elbows, scrapes and contusions on back of both hands. In addition, Dr. Bollinger opinion that within a reasonable degree of medical certainty, the various bruises and injuries Anne-Marie suffered could have resulted from Anne-Marie being held under the water in a creek by another person and drowning. It's a very sobering thought when you read these. It just makes you wonder what was going through his mind at the time. This is a person that you lived with, that you said your vows with, that yes, you fight with sometimes, but again, you did you hate this person that bad that you could not go to an attorney and say, look, you know what? I cannot continue this anymore. I need to do this. Were they fighting prior to this? prior to the point where he where Anne-Marie found out that he was seeing Ms. George. That I don't know. It doesn't talk about any of their prior issues. After all this testimony, a York County jury convicted Fitzpatrick of first-degree murder in May of 2015. But then, for whatever reason, a county judge later voided the conviction, citing that he determined that there were there was insufficient evidence. The state superior court reinstated the murder conviction, and the state supreme court refused to hear an appeal by Fitzpatrick. And in PA law, depending on what you are convicted with, if it's first degree, second degree, or third degree, first degree murder you are automatically sentenced to life, which is what he was sentenced with, which he deserves. But 
there's more. Fitzpatrick, who was convicted of murdering his wife, apparently tried to collect on her life insurance policy. The, he had two of them, which totaled that $1.7 million. The one he tried to collect on was the $500,000 insurance policy, and the federal judge ruled on it. Instead of him collecting on it, there he was the main beneficiary, and then there were his two daughters, which is what the U.S. Met, uh, Middle District Judge John E. Jones found that the money should, who the money should go to were the two teenage daughters. Fitzpatrick is barred by Pennsylvania law from getting even one cent of that payout. And the main reason being, you, you can't profit from someone's death, but, but the other thing is, is there's someone that can still profit from that, and that's the girlfriend. You know, is she going to try and write a book or sell the rights to it? The, the, the lives that he affected, the first, after the first sentence hearing, which happened immediately after the jury found him guilty in 2015, the family members of his wife spoke in court about their grief and pain. And this included his two daughters, both of whom were teenagers and are being raised by the grandparents in Maryland of his, of Amory. Emily, who at the time was 16 years old, told the judge she enjoyed a perfectly happy childhood that turned dark when she was about 11. And at the time, Emily said she was angry that her father was being taken away from her and jailed, distraught that she and her sister were forced to move to Maryland where they had no friends. Her mother's voice, she went on to say, lonely and miserable for a while, but that Eventually, things got better. Still, she grieves for her mother. I don't remember the sound of my mother's voice, she said in court. How heartbreaking is that? And it makes you wonder what went through his head when he heard her say this. Because he could have just given her a divorce, not kill her, just given her a divorce. And her mother would be here and none of that would have happened. Emily told Wren that she had had to consider, Wren is the judge, she had to consider the possibility that her father was the monster others had made him out to be. After her own careful review, she said she now believes her father killed her mother. But the younger daughter, Rachel, has a different opinion crying and struggling to control herself. She says, I love you very much, Daddy, and I don't believe you did it. I will always have faith in you. Again, heartbreaking, because when she finally comes to terms with it all, it's going to be like losing her mother again, all over again. Now, the sister of Anne-Marie talks about, who, who, who gets up and talks about Anne-Marie, says how kind and generous and compassionate and selfless Amory was. Her family was her priority and being a mother was her calling. A, another person who spoke, Bonnie Vassilotti, which is Amory's mom, said that Amory could light up a room when she walked in and always put others before herself. And Amory was a special person from the day she was born. And that 
For her, it's been a special privilege to raise both Emily and Rachel, who she called true survivors and wonderful young ladies. Of course, after all of this, of course, Fitzpatrick's attorney, you know, makes comments about going forward with appeals and blah, 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 blah. So up at this point in time, you know, he's he's sitting in jail. You know, he he's making his appeals. He only he only has so many to make before he runs out. Look, something like this never has to happen. I mean, it really just does not. Why the one spouse is more afraid of getting a divorce than going through with murder baffles me. Can the other person take you to the cleaners? Yes, absolutely. But if caught, you're risking looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life or going to jail for the rest of your life and risking the death penalty. Do you get appeals? Yes, but most of them are exhausted and you end up spending the rest of your life in jail and you end up being someone's quote unquote friend bitch. And some die before they before getting to their execution date. Am I asking for you all to be compassionate? Absolutely not. Just stop being stupid. There are a few things that are worth giving giving up your soul for and murdering your spouse because you don't want to get a divorce isn't one of them. Man up, pull up your big girl, big boy pants and be an adult and do the right thing and get an attorney and don't fight over the fucking toaster. I hope y'all enjoyed today's story. It definitely had some twists to it. Remember, this episode is available on these platforms, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean.com. We're also on Twitter at All Things Erie from Erie PA, and that's Erie with three E's, and Instagram at K-A-T-H-Y-B-R-D-L-Y. Don't forget to let me know what you think or if you have any comments. So please stay safe, stay healthy, and this is Kathy signing off.